Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Brittany Lehman here as a guest. Brittany is Senior uh, Liaison Librarian for History at Boston College and an expert in German and global history. Today, we'll discuss her recent book, entitled Teaching Migrant Children in Europe and West Germany, 1949 to 1992. This book appeared with Palgrave Macmillan in its series on the history of childhood in 2019. Hello, Brittany. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're glad to have you. So um, to start, Brittany, I was wondering if uh, this is a a traditional start to new books interviews, but I was wondering if I could pose two questions. First, I wanted to know if you would be willing to discuss how your interest in your multiple fields of specialties, uh, of specialty, German studies, global history, and history of migration first started. And then my second question is, you know, what were the circumstances that led you to research and write this particular book? Yeah, I'd be delighted to talk about those things. Uh, Well, first off, I suppose you could say there's two main reasons, one familial and then one academic interest. On the familial side, in terms of both German and then migration history, on my mother's side of the family, I am a descendant of Italian migrants, of a family, some of whom went up to Germany, to the Cologne area, and then some of whom went to the United States. Complicated paths. Suffice to say, those two branches of the family ended up I suppose you could say, developing in a very different direction. In the U.S., we got a lot of nurses and doctors. And on the German side, we ended up with a lot of construction workers. And both families are obviously fantastic people, but it was interesting to see how location sort of shoehorned the family into two very different directions. And then on the research side of it, I actually decided to look into the idea of migration to Germany in part because before I did my dissertation, I did a degree in library science, part of the reason I'm a librarian today. And while I was actually doing an internship in Germany, it became very evident, let's just say that there were some concerns about integration, particularly from Mediterranean, obviously, particularly Turkish populations, into the German community. And I wondered about the hows and whys of that, how people were understanding the concept of Germanness if people in the library could look at a young child who spoke fluent German but had very dark hair and then automatically assume that they were Turkish. And I began researching those issues, eventually applied to do my dissertation and was able to start at UNC at Chapel Hill to follow those interests. And with the support of two advisors, ended up obviously doing an entire dissertation that is now a book on the topic. Great. Uh, Well, thanks for sharing that. And I think it's uh, always, uh, you know, always interesting to hear these uh, connections between uh, personal background and research. And it's uh, an interesting reminder of us to all, you know, kind of scrutinize uh, our own family's history of migration uh, when we're thinking about these things. Um, so I thought we could then uh, shift maybe into discussing the book at this point and getting into the content. And I'd like to start out by talking methodology with you, if you don't mind. And I really enjoyed, uh, or one aspect of the book I really enjoyed here was its transnational focus and its transnational methodology. And on the one hand, you explore migrant children in West Germany from, that, who came from all different parts of Europe, right? It's focused on West Germany, but you look at all, people of all sorts of different uh, migrant backgrounds in West Germany. Uh, but on the other hand, you also uh, analyze policy, uh, the policies that, uh, that really affected the children of migrants. Um, and you look at it at the European level. You look at it at the national West German level. 
uh, and you also look at it at the local level. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain how you developed such a sophisticated approach to this book. Yeah, it'd be <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, at one point in the development of this project, Conrad uh, Yachlish referred to it as a multi-layered cake with a red thread, which might make it hard to write. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, well, part of what was happening is many people, as I was getting started in the project, had specifically been looking at migration from Turkey to West Germany and the multiple aspects of that as many listeners might know, there has been some phenomenal research on on that topic that has come out over the last 10 to 20 years now. But with my own familial background, I was interested partly in how Italian migration fit into this story. And as I was looking at Turkish and Italian migration together, I started wondering about other forms of migration as well, how much issues of citizenship status and membership to the EU or EC at the time, European community featured into what people could or could not do, what their rights actively were. But on the other hand, if you actually want to find out what their rights are, one needs to not only consider what is being claimed and said by the state, but what actual implementation is. And so with that, I was trying to figure out how one can understand those complex issues and how they interplayed. And I decided to look at schooling in part because children's education is an important topic. It's an emotional topic. It's an issue of rights and access. Many people assume it as a given. And yet there are a lot of legal structures in place about who can and cannot. And so it seemed like an avenue, that red thread, that could bring all of those local and international issues together. And once I got started with education, it led me to local state archives. In theory, I could have actually gone to schools, but that got a little bit too much. I looked at the teachers unions. I looked at the European archives. I looked at the federal ministry of education, as well as the federal foreign office, because one of the things that tied a lot of these kids together is that they were explicitly foreign citizens. And there was a question of whether or not they were also foreign nationals. <laughs> so limitations and access between policy became an issue of international negotiation and bilateral relationships, as well as an issue of supranational organizations as institutions like the United Nations said that education is supposed to be a fundamental human right but education is also about teaching identity. And so if you also then have minority or ethnic rights, those two issues can come into conflict depending on where you think these issues come into play. And so what you end up getting is a necessity of looking at these multiple issues if you actually want to talk about education for migrants, particularly who do not have citizenship. And... I am absolutely one of those historians who thinks almost everything is fascinating. So the idea of cutting <laughs> any of those portions was too much to consider. <laughs> <laughs> too much to bear. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, obviously I had to do cuts in certain places, but I, I didn't see how one could leave off local and actually talk about what Europe was actually doing or talk about the Europe being at a solely theoretical level without actually considering implementation, which for schools you cannot do unless you look locally. Well, I can only imagine how time-consuming it was to kind of do the research on all these different levels. So my, my reaction when I was reading it was to just feel very lazy as, a, as an historian that I'm not kind of always always looking at these different levels. Of things. <laughs> so I was very impressed by uh, how much research you did. I was very lucky with funding. I spent two years in 12 different archives. And wow. so the fact that I was able to do that is phenomenal. And I had a lot of fun figuring out those different archival systems. And most of the staffs in these different places were incredibly supportive, though often a little bit baffled that I was there. The foreign <laughs> office hadn't realized how much on education they had. 
Um, all right. Uh, well, at this point, uh, I have to ask you a question and, uh, that is a little bit self-indulgent. Um, and that is, I have to ask you about the role of, uh, Pierre Bourdieu in your, uh, in your thinking. And since I'm also a fan, I kind of thought I want, would try to get you, uh, talking about this issue a little bit. And you don't explicitly say that this is a history that's shaped by Bourdieu's thinking, but you reference his ideas at many points throughout the book. Um, so I thought maybe for some of our listeners who are not as, uh, familiar, uh, with, uh, Pierre Bordeaux, uh, I was wondering if you can summarize a few of his ideas and explain, uh, why, uh, you know, just a few of the ideas, not all of them, but, uh, why his theories provide, uh, such good conceptual framework for understanding, you know, your book about migrant children in Europe. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, Obviously, the laughter, as clearly you already know, is coming because both, and I sadly read French but do not speak it. So Pierre Baudou was a scholar who, whose work spanned multiple decades and has been influential uh, in many, many disciplines. For me, coming to his theories was, was in part because I was working with a French historian as one of my readers actually, uh, named Don Reed. And he was encouraging me to think also about how other European communities dealt with concepts of migration. And so I was going through many, many French theorists and I started reading some of Pierre Bourdieu's work on things like, well, just straight out education, but on issues of symbolic violence in which Bourdieu talks about how you can have a society that ends up repeating and replicating systems of power structures of social organization that actually commit violence on the individual, not necessarily literally in terms of one person, whatever, punching another, but in terms of reifying and replicating social structures that keep people apart or keep poor people down earlier in his work back in the seventies and such his, at least based on my understanding, his emphasis was also often on socioeconomic structures and how the rich both stay rich, but also how people in elite positions keep themselves there in part by doing things like constructing schools that assume that you have a base set of knowledge. We see things like that in the United States with SATs and such, which often have significantly higher scoring among white male populations, particularly from higher socioeconomic brackets, because they end up privileging the information that those student groups would come into contact with. Whereas student groups who then don't, from their families, from their friends, learn to speak in very stiff sentence structures. They don't necessarily learn about John Smith or whomever in, in high school, et cetera, end up then performing a little bit worse, not because they don't have the intelligence, but simply because they do not live in a particular habitus, which enables them to experience and sort of absorb that information, I guess, almost from the air, as people just mention, as they name drop, as they live their daily lives. And you have this issue then that assumptions of basically common sense are actually cultural reproductions that commit violence on those different population groups. So that that by itself was relevant to my work. But added to that, uh, later on in Bordeaux's career, he began working more and more on the issue of migration. Obviously, France has very significant populations, both from former colonies in terms of heritage, but also in terms of recent migration. And he was very interested in issues of social othering, difference, and not only with how people separate each other out based on socioeconomic status, but also based on that perception of ethnic or national difference. And then he also began to work with a gentleman with the last name of Said, I believe it's S-A-Y-E-D, uh, who got into a lot of theoretical work on the concept of 
migration, the nation identity, and basically argued that when you have one ethnic community, such as people from Italy moving up to Germany, though he was, say it was using uh, people from Algeria, usually moving to France, that you have those people from Italy arriving in places like West Germany with a particular sense of identity, that they often come feeling that they're Genovese or Neapolitan, etc. But that while they're in that new space, the local population, in this case West German, often rejects them as part of the local group. And so you then have the so-called new group forming what is, in essence, a new sense of identity. It's neither the one that is explicitly Neapolitan, but it's also not quite what people would then see as West German. And Said argued that we actually should understand this as a new ethnic group that often would use a national label because that's the label imposed on them. Children in Italy rarely saw themselves in the 1950s as Italian because they identified familially or regionally. Whereas it was in Germany then that they would learn to be Italian. So that in turn would raise the question of are there actually any Italians in Italy or is that an identity structure that is built in other parts of the world, including the United States. So those are multiple, sort of a couple multiple prongs that I'm using uh, Bordeaux and Said. Great. Well, thank you for for answering that question. And so next, uh, I'd, I'd like to ask you about your decision to use West Germany as a case study. Uh, the book does focus on on West Germany, uh, but it does use West Germany uh, to make larger claims about the education of migrant migrant children in Europe as a whole, uh, from the end of World War II to uh, the early 1990s. You know, post just post Cold War. And so, why is West Germany such a good place to study the children of refugees, labor migrants, and asylum seekers? West Germany ended up, for for many, many reasons, becoming one of the major migration destinations in post-World War II Europe. Among those reasons were that the state did not feel it could close its borders against European migrants leaving their, I suppose, places of origin on account of the Second World War. Some of that was imposed from the Allied powers and other parts of that were either ethical reasons or occasionally a little bit self-serving as well. But you also then, moving forward, had an asylum law that was premised on those same ethical concerns. In order to make up for the past, Germany needed to be a place of refuge in the present. And that fit into some of the humanitarian goals the state implemented. And As West Germany began to pull back on that, particularly in the 70s, you continued to have a lot of family migration, but actually still increased asylum migration in part because of improvements in methods of travel. It's easier today to move across the world than it necessarily was in the late 1940s or early 1950s. So with all of these different populations coming in, West Germany ended up being some sort of a nexus point. You also had or have it as a point that West Germany and Germany today has a very complicated, shall we say, relationship with its with the understanding of German colonization, which there is some fascinating work coming out on right now. But the migrants then coming into West Germany in contrast to, say, France or the United Kingdom didn't have the same conceptual right to citizenship that migrants coming from, say, whatever, Sierra Leone to France might have had. And so you got a very curious boundary between the understanding of the local citizen and the supposed foreign other. There are reasons that one would want to explore more of the colonial issues. I didn't, partly just because of space. One has to cut somewhere. But then you also, with West Germany, 
specifically, as opposed to, say, the United Kingdom, have the issue that it was part of the European community, which became the European Union from the get-go, which means that all of those considerations about who supposedly is European was playing out specifically in Germany for the entire length of that post-World War II migration period. So all of those issues featuring together were why I decided to look at migration to West Germany. Also having a, a point of case study enabled me to examine policy and implementation for different groups and not as opposed to if I had done, a, say, a French-German comparison, which a lot of those differences could have been chalked up to state difference as opposed to group difference. Great, thank you. And um, now I'd like to move on to the issue of citizenship in the book. And citizenship in West Germany is a central aspect uh, that you look at. And I was wondering if you could speak about how citizenship was determined in West Germany. I'm sure not all our listeners will, will know that. And also how uh, that influenced the access that the children of migrants had to educational opportunity. There are very, there are very short answers to that and very long ones to that. Um, the short answer to how citizenship in West Germany was determined is that in 1949, it was very much tied into the perception of heritage. And I specify perception of heritage in that there was there continued to be an understanding that Germanness was supposed to be tied to blood. But a lot of times, when this is not in the 1940s and 50s, it's not an era of DNA testing, etc. And those are often notoriously fallible themselves. But people had to claim, verify, prove heritage that often came down to could they speak German. Being a German speaking speaker myself and not of German heritage, or not exactly, I have... Germanic relatives are, well, that's a terrible word to use. I have relatives of German descent who came over to the United States in 1608. So do with that what you will. But the point of this being that if you could prove that you were of German descent, then you could, in theory, get citizenship. But that proof was could be falsified. That proof could be based on very circumstantial evidence and it often was based on the perception of your physicality. So if you were attempting to get German citizenship but didn't look right, then oftentimes your application would become into more question than, say, if you were coming over from Poland, didn't speak any German, but had a German-sounding last name, in which case you'd likely get approved either way. The... Legalities of citizenship change with relatively frequent uh, strangenesses, I suppose you could say, over <laughs> the post-World War II period. In theory, you have this connection with blood, but citizenship is explicitly passed down by the father until, I just blinked on the air, hmm, until the 60s, let's say. I'm pretty sure it's mid-60s. Uh, in which case you had a change across Europe arguing that it was actually unfair, uh, unequal, sexist, to only pass citizenship down through the father, in which case a mother could pass down her citizenship to her children as well, which yeah, says a lot about perceptions of ownership, et cetera, et cetera, of both children and women, et cetera. But what you got with this idea of expanding that citizenship was a problem of dual citizenship. A lot of people argued that both parents shouldn't be allowed to do so, and this was a Council of Europe initiative as well, because if a mother and father had different citizenship and the child had dual citizenship from both, then that child might have conflicting state loyalties, in particular when it came to military service. So if the child didn't know what national identity they had, what citizenship should they then have? And it's you have a lot of people talking in very large circles, but it ends up changing in Germany in part because so many 
women in Germany who were viewed as German were having children, say, with Italian, Turkish, Greek, etc. men, who those children then raised in Germany, in German schools, speaking German, were then considered foreign citizens. And when you get several hundred thousand of these children, the state then in West Germany starts to say, well, maybe these kids should in fact be German. And so you get the law opened up. Uh, You then have further changes to start saying maybe these third, fourth generation children should also be entitled to citizenship, which gets into those weird boundaries before between who is a German national, who is a German citizen, and who is ethnically German. Are those three categories the same thing, or are they actually separate? Can you have a German child who speaks German as a first language but is Muslim? I hope that today's listeners don't understand why that would be a problem, but it was definitely a point of consideration in the 70s into the 80s and it's only then in 2000 where the citizenship laws really open up to basically say, if you are born in Germany, you have usually some sort of right to German citizenship, though it often still includes restrictions for dual citizenship, etc., depending on bilateral state relationships. It's important to understand that citizenship is a legal category that has significant legal ramifications that being a national doesn't necessarily have. That was a complicated answer. Do you want me to simplify any of those parts or do you think that works? (laughs) No, I think that works, Brittany. Um, And I I think maybe at this point in the interview, uh, we should start uh, looking at uh, a few of the the chapters in the body of the book, and I think that could be interesting um, because you you kind of look at all these. You move chronologically, but in the process, you look at all these um, different groups of people who who migrated to West Germany over time. And I think uh, you know one of the first body chapters of the book looks at this kind of transformational moment uh, in West German history, which was the the mid to late 1940s. And it was this uh, moment of massive kind of displacement and migration in Europe. And you kind of start out by discussing dis, uh, displaced persons in Germany after the war. And you look at how the new Bundesländer in West Germany uh, dealt with uh, the right to education for these displaced persons. So I was just wondering if you could, uh, you know, kind of uh, briefly sketch out uh, what you do uh, with uh, your chapter about displaced persons. Yeah. So (laughs) those issues that we've just been talking about of citizenship, of layering policy, all feature into what the very new West German states start doing in the late mid and late forties and into the fifties in part because, well, they're, they're required to, but also for reestablishing international reputation, West Germany with its individual states as well, do not want to flout international norms for human rights. They, for many reasons, view themselves as having to make up for a Nazi past and or cover it up, depending on which administrative official you're looking at. And West Germany signs on to this international idea of human rights, but specifically that includes the right to education. And then there's also this idea that with refugee law, any refugee, and they're mostly interested in Europe, uh, who is displaced on account of Nazi atrocities has the right to come to West Germany and get asylum. And part of that right for those refugee groups is that they are allowed to be educated. And as it ends up sort of as an addendum to that, the idea is that they can be educated on the same basis as host country nationals. Because one of the things when you are considering the right to education is many people argue that you have to have the right to education be compulsory because children have to be educated into later have in order to later have rights like right to vote 
right to work, et cetera, et cetera. But education is also viewed to be about identity. And do you want to force a child from Poland, say, who is now in West Germany to be educated as a German person? They have the right to be there. They have the right to education. But the idea of compelling national identity and Germanness was then viewed as a negation of their rights as a minority. And the language back in the 50s was a little bit different with this. But then some of the consideration from the get-go and most foreigners were meeting people with foreign citizenship in West Germany in the 50s, that idea was explicitly tied to the refugee. You didn't have much in the way of labor migration yet, even though there was some. I mean, the German economy is in shambles. Most people aren't moving there to work. So what you end up getting is the initial discussions on the right to education for non-citizens to be tied up with the right to education specifically for displaced persons. And displaced persons are explicitly defined as those refugees who are moving on account of Nazi atrocities, who are displaced from their locales, their homes. And built into this is very much people displaced on account of the early Cold War era. But that isn't being talked about as directly, though there have been studies on how those ideas intertwine. So what you end up getting is this assumption in early education law that children with foreign citizenship should have the right to education in their own ethnic backgrounds. But what that means is then put into question when that's supposed to happen becomes very controversial because if you're not then taking German as a first language, but actually Polish as a first language in the German system, that can actually hurt you later on in your well, school career, but then also in the potential for getting vocational training and then eventually a job or attending university. If your German is shaky, that can cause problems. I mean, that one probably won't surprise listeners. So what you end up getting is a piecemeal, depending on state, implementation of those concepts. Some people say this needs to be written into law. Some people say that in order to do this properly, children need to be able to volunteer to go to school as opposed to have compulsory school attendance with the idea that it would not infringe on their right to personhood, which is that idea that you have the right to your own ethnic group. And without an agreement across Germany, you then have all of the different West German states having different laws in those regards, because in Germany, education is a state issue. There's, there are very, very few federal laws on education, and most of those have to do with a university. All right, great. Thank you. And then in the uh, switching gears a little bit now to the middle part of your book, you switch from your discussion of post-war refugees uh, to a discussion of guest workers who arrived in Germany during the 1960s and early 70s. And you, uh, early on uh, in this middle section, you talk about a really intriguing case, and that's the, you recount the history of the children born to Greek guest workers. Uh, and in this case, the government of Greece wanted these children educated in a way so they'd be prepared uh, to one day return to Greece. Um, so I was wondering if you'd talk about some of the challenges that ensued from this situation where uh, Greece was really playing an active role in um, how the children of Greek guest workers in West Germany were educated. So those, <laughs> those issues that we were just talking about in regards to the right to your own ethnic background very much come into play here because for Greece, to some extent like Germany, though, with different implementation, you have this idea that if you have Greek background, particularly in regards to if you are Greek Orthodox and or speak Greek, that you are Greek. And according to the Greek government, if you are Greek, you will someday return to Greece because you are part of the Greek community, part of that Greek diaspora. And so 
the point of the Greek diaspora is to come home someday. Which means for the Greek government that any child who is Greek living in West Germany is Greek and they will someday return to Greece. That is a given. Obviously in in how things play out, many people <laughs> stay in West Germany for many reasons. Uh, you do have higher return, mi- or sometimes return migration from West Germany to Greece than maybe some of the other areas that were are on the table for this, particularly in regards to the later, say, Turkish or Moroccan groups. But with the Greek situation, because the Greek government was convinced of the Greekness of any descendant of a Greek person, the Greek government very much took the stance, partly because in contrast to Germany, Greek education is centralized, it's under federal control. That means that to be Greek properly, you need a Greek education. And a Greek education is the education provided by the Greek Ministry of Education using Greek Ministry of Education textbooks. Furthermore, you have the complication within that education that spoken modern Greek, demotic, is not necessarily written Greek at this time. So if you want to raise a child to be Greek and also to have equal rights to employment someday, they need to learn to speak fluent spoken Greek, but then also learn a sort of form of semi-classical Greek, especially if they ever need to go to court or they need to they want to write a book. You want to be a novelist. You don't write in your vernacular. You do today, usually. So that means you need a relatively intensive education to, according to the Greek government, truly be Greek. Which means that the Greek government wanted its citizens in West Germany to have access to a fully Greek education. But one of the questions of the right to education is... Should it actually be a local education? Should all children go to the same primary school? Obviously not like physically the same primary school, but like duplications of the same lessons, etc. Can it be localized? Can it diverge? Which means that somebody learning to be Greek in West Germany might be having their right to education violated from the German side, even as they're having it fulfilled from the Greek side. And Greece, furthermore, was willing to pay actually for some private Greek schools, but actually, depending on the administration in play, occasionally wanted some of those lessons to be compulsory. And so the German government partially had to decide at the federal, the state, and state levels whether or not they wanted to support and or provide funding for these children to learn to be Greek in West Germany. And this brought up questions of can a child raised in West Germany actually be Greek and whether the West German was responsible for supporting that because part of the right to education in international education law is that the state must provide at least a primary schooling at no cost. And West Germany argued that most Greek individuals coming into Germany West Germany specifically, were going to be temporary labor. Most of them were coming in as the children of guest workers, which meant that they were theoretically temporary workers, which meant that the children were only supposed to be temporarily be in West Germany, which theoretically meant that the West German government agreed with the Greek government that these children were in fact Greece, Greek, pardon, even though they lived <laughs> in West Germany. You will notice a lot of loops in that discussion. Um, which is pretty much how the policy discussions run uh, with a lot of people, I presume, throwing their hands up in the air and eventually often deciding to try to do the least harm. And it's often decided within the idea of the least harm that children with Greek citizenship in Germany should be ethnically Greek, which means they need some education from the from the Greek state. But the German government, at least according to Baden-Württemberg, was not required to provide a Greek education. They were required by law 
to provide a German education, which meant that they had to judge these children in regards to equivalency on the German right to education, which meant that they had to ethically ensure that these children learn to compete in the German workforce. So were therefore obligated to provide lessons in German for newly arriving children, for providing integration classes, for providing support, even as they then also encouraged ethnic development and after school or sometimes weekend classes, sometimes actually during the school day, it depends on which school, for also learning to be Greek. So you were supposed to having have children learning two different education tracks and if you actually think about things like mathematics or sciences, even though in theory we are learning to add and subtract when we learn math, we are learning to do so with a lot of cultural trappings. So in Germany, you would learn a lot of things like counting potatoes. Unfortunately, it's not a joke when I say that some of those Greek Ministry of Education textbooks had you learn to do math by counting the bullets left in your gun after you shot at your Turkish adversaries. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, cultural underpinnings to things that seem arguably universal. And then not only that, different state education systems teach children different things at different years. West Germany prided itself on having a wonderful education system but it had a common primary school and then a three-track secondary school. And it was assumed that if you were a child who went to one of the upper-level tracks, you would learn a solid scientific foundation. For the Greek educational system, you only had a compulsory primary schooling with encouraged secondary schooling up until the 60s. Now it's compulsory secondary as well. But that meant that you had to teach a Greek child everything that they needed to know in primary school. So you actually got a lot more math and sciences in Greek primary school than you did in German. So a Greek fourth grader, in theory, would know a lot more physics than a West German, ethnic German fourth grader. So there were a lot of complications regarding equivalency and identity And then in practice, even though they're saying a lot of children should be learning to do both, it overwhelmed a lot of children. Added to that, on the German side, there actually wasn't funding for a lot of the programs that they technically by policy guaranteed, which is, once again, one of those reasons that I didn't feel like I could cut off the local from the international. International law might say that children are supposed to have extra help in the local state languages, but if the local Ministry of Education doesn't have that money. It's on the books, but not actually in the schools. Um, all right. I think at this point, I'd like to then switch our focus from uh, the children of Greek guest workers and the educational policies directed at them and look instead at the, at the children of Turkish guest workers. Your book does a very good job of talking about um, Turkish migration as part of the so-called guest worker period from the mid-1950s to the mid-1970s. And you really focus in on the years right around the year 1970, which is this big moment of transition for um, uh, people who had migrated to West Germany from Turkey uh, and certainly for their children and their education. And in some ways, I feel like you uh, have this um, dichotomy, so to speak, in the section where on the one hand, you talk about how uh, many West Germans wanted to expand educational opportunities for the children of Turkish, Turkish guest workers by around 1970. But then on the other hand, you point out how, um, you know, the there was still a failure to adequately educate Turkish children. Um, And I think this is really important to the thesis of your overall book. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this uh, seeming contradiction in in these years right around 1970 regarding uh, education of the children of Turkish guest workers. I appreciate that you refer to the so-called guest worker period of 
because one of the things I wanted to make clear in this book, particularly in this section, like you pointed out, was that limiting the discussion of people with Turkish heritage, German individuals with Turkish citizenship, however one wants to encompass this group of millions of people, limiting that to a discussion of the guest worker period and calling all people with Turkish citizenship guest workers ends up emphasizing the idea of the temporary and ends up suggesting that we are looking often at people of socioeconomic status that isn't necessarily great. So auto workers, etc., who, I mean, are often part of unions, tangential to unions, but often get short shrifted, which then feeds into the rest of your questions, because even though with the understanding of the guest worker period, which is mid fifties to early seventies, even though the bulk of the Turkish migration or migration from Turkey ends up happening at the end of the sixties, but even more so into the seventies, a lot of people assume that all guest workers are Turkish. They forget that there were actually eight guest worker countries involved, including Greece, including Italy, etc. And so when people are then talking about in the early seventies, those with Turkish citizenship in Germany, you are talking about a relatively new migrant group. Some of these individuals have been in Germany at that point for a decade, but a lot of these people, particularly children, because they're young, uh, have only been in the country for a couple of years, but they are coming with the legacy of those who've come from other countries before them. So the Turkish ministry, sorry, pardon, the West German ministries of education already know that so-called temporary workers are often not temporary. Oftentimes you have people who are only have a two-year contract, but then get it renewed and stay for a decade and longer. So even if you have a child who in theory is supposed to be temporary, you don't know that that kindergartner is not going to spend their entire school career in West Germany. So a lot of people in the early 70s begin advocating for citizenship laws to change, but also begin advocating for the idea that if you are in West Germany, you need a full German education and you need more support for that German education if you are coming in speaking Turkish, etc., in part because the population is exploding. Instead of having one or two children entering a German-speaking classroom who don't speak German, and usually with younger children, if, if they end up in a classroom where they don't speak the language, they learn it very quickly. If you reach over 20% of the classroom not speaking the local languages, you end up with groups of school children who speak to themselves or among themselves and not to their classmates, and so they don't necessarily pick up the languages quickly, which then necessitates either the children to be spread out among different schools or extra German language instruction. So it's time and resource intensive to actually get children integrated. And that's where some of the split happens is should these children be actually integrated and treated as Germans, even though they don't have German citizenship and often, but not always self-identify as Turkish or what you get a growing set of is should these kids be forced to learn to be Turkish in part, because if they learn to be German, they'll probably stay in Germany. Whereas if they learn to be Turkish in Germany, then they might be more inclined to someday go to Turkey. And it's important to keep in mind at this point that when we talk about the children of Turkish migrants in Germany, we are often talking about children who are born in Germany. They speak German as their first language. They've never lived anywhere else. If they had been born in the United States, they would simply be U.S. citizens. But being born in Germany at this time means that they are Turkish citizens born in Germany, which then brings up those complications of ethnicity and nationality that we were talking about at the beginning with Bordeaux. So some people, particularly those who want 
there to be less Turkish people in Germany want to force a Turkish education to promote out-migration, so immigration from Germany to Turkey. Other people are supporting that same thing in order to support minority and ethnic rights. What right does Germany have to force Turkish children to be German? But then, of course, and this goes a little bit further into the book as well, you have the issue that many people coming to Germany from the country of Turkey identify as, say, Kurdish. So if you have a Kurdish child or child who identifies as Kurdish with Turkish citizenship in West Germany, what is that child supposed to learn? And who are they supposed to be? The German state decides that that child is Turkish, even as they identify as Kurdish, and speak German. So you get this conflicting goal of integrating children, but also preventing integration in order to either support their ethnic rights and or force them out of the country, which seem like opposing goals. And yet, and yet, but when you're talking about first tens of thousands, then very quickly hundreds of thousands, and eventually millions of children. How is one supposed to make a clear policy that actually is in the best interest of the child when you aren't talking about one child? So that is an oversimplification of what was going on in the early 1970s. Yeah, and I, I think the book captures a lot of these, you know, you know, contradictions, entanglements, or as you say, but as you said before, in the Greek case, loops, you know, that, uh, you know, contribute to these, uh, you know, long-term patterns of, of inequality. There is a um, pardon. There is a quick so I, caveat uh, that I should point out. Most of what I looked at was primary school, which we are talking about the ages of like six to ten. I did explore a little bit of secondary, but I'm most of this book really focusing on young children before they're looking at entering the workforce and such like that. So that point at which a lot of education specialists view national and citizenship identity to be forming. Yeah. And that's interesting. It's a, it's an important point also. Um, okay. I think I, you know, I want to just ask you, you just, we are starting to run short on time, but I do, want to ask you about xenophobia. Um, I think you write really intelligently about xenophobia throughout the book. And it's a theme that emerges in multiple different chapters, but you have uh, more of a um, narrow focus or uh, kind of more laser-like focus on it in when you write about the 1980s. And you do uh, write about xenophobia rising in the 1980s um, especially in terms of negative stereotypes about Turkish and Muslim residents in West Germany. You also put this xenophobia in tension with uh, an increasing dialogue about multiculturalism. So I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that and just to make it a little bit more complicated <laughs> than it already is. I was wondering if you saw any connections between your writing about xenophobia in the 80s and xenophobia as it exists today in Germany and in Europe, because obviously Germany is at the center today of discussions about migration after you had a number of refugees and asylum seekers, uh, you know, enter Germany in 2015. Yeah, so there are some... In regards to xenophobia, there are some very curious differences between discussing things like xenophobia, discrimination, racism in the U.S. than in places like West Germany. And this does extend partly to East Germany as well. Partly in that, say, in the Southeast in the United States, racism is often discussed specifically in terms of black and white. In contrast, in West Germany in the 1950s into the 1980s, you had a focus on racism, which I'm defining here as discrimination based off of 
oftentimes physical characteristics or the perception thereof. Germany, in contrast to the U.S., defined racism in terms of discrimination against specifically Jewish individuals and often did not speak about the Afro-Deutsch population at all. Instead, I mean, you do have a discussion about it now and some fantastic scholarship on some of those complications and the history of silence, etc. But instead of talking about things like racism in Germany, you had a focus in policy and intellectual discussions, etc. Instead on culturalism and xenophobia, which is the fear of the other. And that focus on xenophobia fed into that issue of culturalism, which is discrimination based on the view of cultural difference. And a lot of people dealt with this by arguing that people from Turkey coming into West Germany were a problem because they were going to destroy German culture or dilute it or change it. And supposedly they did not have the right to do this. Not all people thought this, obviously, but many people did. And this is a discussion that you constantly see in the news, etc. In part because there's this assumption on the part of many people, they're being taught it in school, that a national identity is a cultural identity, which should be tied to citizenship and is somehow actually real. That there is a Germanness. Now, if you actually ask people to define that, it falls apart almost immediately because people in Hamburg today, if you say, well, aren't Bavarians German, they'll start hemming and hawing and suggesting that there's weird exceptions. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's hilarious in a very disturbing way. (laughs) But what you then get is also the negation that culture is something that grows and depends on those who participate in it. And if you believe that culture is tied to nationality and that nationality is real and ergo determines citizenship, then you have this issue that if you have Turkish heritage, that is then, what's the word, anathema, to German heritage. And that's part of where the issue of multiculturalism comes into play, is that Germany talks about a mixed salad version of multiculturalism in contrast to the U.S. melting pot. Now, the melting pot has a lot of racist and problematic connotations. Um, (laughs) If you think about Ford and the turn of the century, so around the 1900s, you get those pageants that he used to put on of everyone in his factories having to climb into wearing their so-called ethnic garb into this giant metal pot and coming out in a three-piece suit. It's a problem. (laughs) But everyone was melted down to be this essence of American. Obviously, not really true. But in contrast, German multiculturalism in the 1980s, you were going to have two people standing next to each other, one who was of German descent and one who is of Turkish descent, and they were going to live together peacefully. But they were not actually going to affect each other culturally. You had the right to be Turkish and you had the right to be German, but you didn't really have a concept of a hyphenated or multicultural identity for one person. It was still very much separated. And for some people, they tried to respect that and, and sort of embrace the nicer sides of that. You didn't have to be forced to assimilate. But other people then argued that that actually meant you had an essential stereotype and that somebody of Turkish descent could not be German. It was either be Turkish or fully assimilate, and then there was questions of if that was possible. And so you have the idea of Turkishness becoming the other against which Germanness is defined, as opposed to different dis- expressions of, of how your family operates. Now, over moving forward into the 90s and into the 2000s, you start having hyphenated identities. You can be Turkish-German now. You can be Afro-Deutsch. And some people embrace that. But I believe it wasn't it Toni Morrison who said recently before she passed that to be hyphenated is to be the other against which Americanness is defined. Not oh. quite in those words. So there's a lot of concern of if you have a standard German versus a Turkish German, whether or not you're sort of sidelining those individuals. 
So even as you have an embrasure of that, you can have multiple different cultural backgrounds contributing to who you are today, that maybe the emphasis on that multiplicity is a problem of itself. I do not have an answer for this, but this are issues very much in play in the asylum and refugee concerns from the mid 2010s, obviously go ongoing today in part, because even if you have some people go back to Syria or such like this, if they want, you will absolutely have huge portions of these populations remain permanently in Germany. So do you hyphenate that and say they are German Syrian, Syrian German, which identity do you privilege given that our language is linear? Added to that, who pays for cultural education? Should you be forcing these children because education is compulsory? Not many five-year-olds want to go to school, although I did. Oh, do you force these children to learn to speak German or do you provide them with teachers from within their community so that they learn their own dialects and accents? Or do you actually bring somebody from Morocco to teach Arabic? Who gets to teach which version of Islam if that is the child's preference at all? Or obviously of multiple asylum groups of various Christian backgrounds, atheists, etc., etc., So how much is an individual child respected and allowed to remain within their community versus how much are they forced to be part of a larger community, which goes back to Baudu of how do you commit the least amount of violence on a child when the entire education system is a form of violence, but that we agree that that violence must be enacted, that the child may someday have other rights including, like I said earlier, the right to vote or the right to work. So we're at an intersection where some people want to do the best to allow the child the choice someday for themselves, but that is expensive. It is hard to find resources, teachers, books, etc. for. And it's also hard on the child when these things are not specifically equivalent, even though with things like math, we would like them to be. So I do not have a good answer, but (laughs) there's definitely some things that one should not do, like promise education programs and provide no money. Yeah. Um, Well, on that note about uh, kind of the conundrums we face and how to uh, try to advocate for good policy on these issues, I'll, I'll I'll say that we have really taken up a lot of your time. I've taken you over time a little bit here. Um, and I'd like to end with our traditional final question of the New Books Network. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a sneak preview into your current research projects. So what are, what are you working on now these days? I'm going to say this really briefly because of time. I've got two projects going. One is is a project that come very much comes out of uh, my teaching and then instruction here at the library. And it's looking at the representation of women in video games about history, arguing that with things like novels, looking at like, uh, historians like Lynn Hunt, we learn things like empathy and how to understand other humans as human, which is important. But in things like video games, we learn about historical agency and the role of choice and individual actors in these larger historical landscapes. And so learning about the past as a mutable moment as opposed to destiny. But if that's what we're learning, and we see most video games present women as either maternal vessels, or like really think like Italian era understanding of maternalism and vessels, uh, or as damsels to be saved and rarely see a woman as the actor that we are seeing more. What does that teach our students who often learn history through video games and TV, as opposed to reading monographs? What does that do to our understanding of the woman within our contemporary world? The other project is continuing an aspect that didn't make it into the book because of space But during the book, I had started researching West German Moroccan migration and also diplomatic international relations. 
and I'm continuing that as a second project that I am not going to talk about in depth because that would, that would take a while. I don't have a clear argument yet. (laughs) (sighs) All right. Well, I I mean, those both sound like really compelling projects and hopefully uh, we can have you back on the new books network to talk about them again when you're, uh, when they're completed. (laughs) I look forward to it. <laughs> All right, and uh, and Brittany, you've really uh, given us a, a really engaging and compelling discussion about your book. So I appreciate uh, that you have given us your time today, and I really thank you for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Great. So you all have been listening uh, to an episode in New Books and German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Brittany Lehman. We discussed her recent book, Teaching Migrant Children in Europe and West Germany, published with Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope that you will continue to listen. <laughs>